Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Force Podcast. It is, of course, your host, Mike G. Today, we had a couple of sponsors to get to before we talk about self-defense, looking for the tactical advantage. I know some of you big and assholes want the tactical disadvantage because you just hate yourself. You hate life. You hate tactics. You hate people who talk about it. Um, but I'm going to give you the advantage. We're going to talk about things that you could do here in this podcast to give yourself all of the advantages in self-defense. And I'll line that out after our sponsors. Our first sponsor is Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens, I've been using AG1, Alpha Golf 1, for almost a year now. I use it to break my fast because you can't get that much nutrition inside of your diet just eating whole foods. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. It's, it's like you can go for it, but it's going to be difficult to do. One tasty scoop of AG1 has 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. Multivitamins, minerals, probiotics. A greens superfood blend and one convenient daily serving. And it tastes good. It doesn't taste like butt. It tastes actually really good. You guys can go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Mike Force and you get one free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. I travel all over the US and next year, 2022 is no exception to that. But if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Mike Force, you could use the five free travel packs that I travel with routinely and one free year of vitamin D. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Mike Force. This podcast is also sponsored by Element. L-M-N-T, Lima Mike November Tango. Element is that supplement that you need that you probably don't even realize that you need. If you're like me and you eat whole food diets, you're going to need electrolytes. You're going to need the sodium, potassium, and certainly the magnesium. Each Element packet contains a perfect electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 mgs of magnesium with no junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Guys, I've been using this because um, I'm eating whole food, uh, uh, low-carb diets. Most of our sodium intake comes from preservatives. That's food that's packed in cans and boxes, which is no good for you, no bueno. You need to make sure that you supplement your electrolytes, especially if you're active. And by active, I mean, if you just live an active lifestyle, make sure you add element to your diet. Right now, if you go to drinkelement.com forward slash Mike Force, again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash Mike Force, you guys can get a free eight sample pack. That's two of the citrus, two of the raspberry, two of the orange, and two raw unflavored. They're all good and you become addicted to them, all you have to do is pay shipping. Uh, and this isn't a scheme. It's $5 for U.S. orders, which is standard. You're just paying for the shipping for it to get to your door. But try it out. Let me know what you think, and make sure you uh, make Element a part of your life. Drinkelement.com forward slash Mike Force. All right, so here we go, kicking off the podcast. All right, guys. So a couple things. First and foremost, a lot of begrudging people that live in this kind of, I don't know, I don't know what it is. They, they live in this space of tactical. They feel like people who shoot anything besides 308, um, shoot anything besides 1911 platforms and pistols, uh, take tactical training. Uh, for some reason, there's this culture and this um, 
tribe of assholes that that want you to have a tactical disadvantage. Um, I remember one one guy in particular who owned a tactical company made tactical guns. Uh, I hope his sons are listening to this so they can relate to their dad. Um, complete asshole. Lived in Prescott Valley. Had a business. I won't name his business because I I don't want to destroy his life or his business. Um, but complete asshole. Thought he was the only one who understood tactics. And we each, we we actually posted about the six five Creedmoor and how it has a double the hit ratio or double the hit probability over 308 at 1,000 yards. Now, that's not debatable. That's science. That's Brian Litz, one of the big heads that consults for Special Operations Command, SOCOM, Special Operations Command, as well as some of the biggest industries that focus on ballistics. He has a book called Applied Ballistics, which is a great, a great read and a great uh, understanding in context about all things ballistics, internal, external, and terminal. But uh, this wasn't a debate. This was a study that was done by SOCOM through Brian Litz uh, when he looked at the data and determined outside of wind factors, which is one of the environmental factors that we can't calculate for, uh, we could predict for, assume for, um, but it's not like barometric pressure, you know, altitude density, those things that we measure as snipers and special operations. And this dude was like, it's a complete lie. It's a farce. 308's superior. It's like, what, what are you talking about? We have the data. It's science. There, there's no debate here. It's science. But these guys, it's the same guys who uh, argue with me on flat ranges that 45 ACP in a 1911 frame is a, a better gun. Yeah, it's better if it's an open class modified gun in the hands of uh, Robbie Latham. Yeah, it's, it's better. But it's not a better practical firearm for self-defense. So you have this whole tribe, this whole culture of these begrudging people who think they know, but they really don't. And they want to tell you how to be at your best disadvantage. Uh, They don't want to teach you how to be at your best advantage tactically or technically. And that's a problem. I I, I don't get that mentality. I mean, I get it because it's the human condition, right? But it's the reason that I started this whole thing called the Tactical Advantage uh, on Defense. It's a three-part series. This is part one of the three-part series. Um, and, And I'll let you know, it's part one of multiple content streams that I'm releasing about these particular um, uh, parts of what I think is, is important to delineate between self-defense, vehicle defense, and home defense, because they're different. Um, self-defense, meaning the gun that you carry on your person, is not the same consideration for the gun you carry in your car, or how you would defend your life with the equipment in and around your car, or your home. Um, like. Like, for example, um, this video that was just released of this police officer in, um, I believe it was in California. Uh, yes, Burlington Coat Factory in California, I believe. This guy had like an old school AR-15. It, it, it's, like, it's like decades old. And he had an ACOG mounted on top of his carrying handle that wasn't like a carrying handle used as a space gap, it was actually on top of the carrying handle um, that was adhered to the gun, like the, which is an old Colt, uh, even, even Stoner, um, uh, Armalite a- AR platform, like super old. 
Um, and then he had an ACOG, like a, a fixed powered ACOG, which has uh, one of the most horrible eye reliefs uh, in the world of optics. I think it's the worst optic available to the market. I, I really do. Now, in the military, guys will tell you, well, it's the best optic I, I had. Of course, you were issued that optic. I'm saying if you have a choice, don't buy an ACOG. Um, I don't like ACOGs because they're not good. I mean, if you're going to have magnification, have, don't have fixed magnification. Have variable magnification. And if you're going to have an ACOG, well, number one, don't have an ACOG. If you're going to have um, an optic that has magnification, have a good uh, uh, eye relief side lens. Um, instead of having, um, looking through a Coke straw, trying to see and navigate in, in, into the world. It's why when we had ACOGs, uh, and again, it's just somebody who, who's, who has lots of experience using ACOGs, uh, we used to mount doctor sites or J points on top of them for close, in close, um, close quarter battle, you know, CQB. And so it, it's a horrible optic, but this guy, he engages a, a guy who was um, uh, reportedly uh, through 911 was beating this woman, um, and you could see her on the ground in the video with, uh, I believe, a bike lock or something like that, where he was pummeling her and he was doing a lot of damage. And he goes to engage this um, guy, and he's he's down the aisle from her, but he goes to engage um, this guy. And puts rounds into the guy. Uh, I think he kills the guy. And then puts a round through the dressing room. Um, at killing a 14-year-old girl. Tragic circumstance. Tragic circumstance. But um, when I see that video in all its totality. Like in a snapshot. I, I make a couple assumptions. Based on um, training law enforcement for nearly 20 years being in special operations for near, nearly the same. Um, the first thing I think is this police officer, um, uh, one, didn't identify a potential threat. I, I didn't see a threat. I don't think there was a firearm discovered. Um, he had a height over bore, meaning an optic over his rifle that was so egregiously over his rifle in close proximity that he likely didn't know his holdoff um, at that distance which is typically the height over bore. So let, let me give you an example. If you have an optic over your barrel um, mounted on the Picatinny rail on top of your gun, the distance between that red dot or that reticle, the center of that reticle, to the center of your bore or your barrel is about the holdoff you're going to get in close proximity, especially within 25 yards. Um, if you're doing a 25, 300-yard zero that is point of aim, point of impact, but anything back to zero, you start to scale back to your height over bore. So if you like took a gun and you walked up to a target and you broke a shot looking through your optic and you measured it, it would be broken at the barrel, essentially the distance from your, uh, the center of your reticle to the center of your barrel. I hope that makes sense. So if you measured it with a ruler and you had 2.5 inches of height over bore um, of the optic over your bore line, that would be what you have to compensate for to hold on a target. So if I wanted to engage a guy in this potential threat and I wanted to make sure I hit him, I would have to compensate for um, that height overbore. And like if I wanted to hit him in the T-zone, let's say it's a T-zone in between the eyes. Well, 
if I just broke a shot center hold on the reticle of their dot, that round's going to go into his mouth. And, and I, I, I hate saying, grot- saying that grotesquely, but I want you to anatomically understand what I'm saying. Um, so if you wanted to hit him in the T-zone, you would technically have to aim over the height over your bore in that distance above the middle of his, uh, um, in between his eyes to break that shot clean in between his eyes. So if he had, uh, in this guy's case, three to four inches of uh, height over bore, that would be an egregious hold. Not only that, but in close proximity, man, to get proper eye relief on that ACOG is super difficult, even for trained um, special operations guys. That's why they don't use it, because it's, it's difficult to get a snapshot target threat identified and break that shot, which is why when you see this guy do what he does and his rifle, I go, this guy didn't even know what the hell he was doing. One, he didn't identify a threat. Two, he took the shot long. He didn't close the distance on the threat. He's got, he's got the tactical advantage because he's holding an AR-15 that shoots 2,500 feet per second, a 5.56 projectile. And he, he, he kind of like pies off that, sees the guy, and then breaks shots. In the, in the sound of the shots breaking and the, and the speed in which he drew that rifle up, I find it very hard to believe that he got a good shot on that uh, bad guy. And if he did, it was haphazard. It was rapid. It's not like he didn't have the time because the guy didn't have a gun. The guy, didn't, the guy wasn't presenting an immediate threat. Now, based on the circumstances, um, it, it could be justified because the guy was just pummeling somebody to death and uh, he, was, he could have perceived threat. Like they didn't know the guy wasn't armed. He could have went, been digging in his pants, you know, trying to get something out of his pants, and he perceived threat. I'm not questioning that, right? I, I think in self defense, based on the circumstances, it looks like a clean kill. What I'm saying is when he um, rounded that corner and the, the speed in which he took those shots, it looks like it was haphazard, which means it looks like he didn't take appropriate time. Um, and putting the shots where they need to be. And that obviously in hindsight is very easy to, to uh, uh, assume because he winded up killing a 14-year-old girl by putting a round through the dressing room, uh, through the drywall into this girl. Now, did he know that? No. But uh, what are the rules of firearm safety? What are the rules of, of firearm anything? Know what your target is and know what's beyond it, right? It's all about angles. If he would have took that shot and, and just sidestep um, just a couple feet he, or, or used his optic and put those rounds where they needed to be, we wouldn't be, I wouldn't even be talking about this. But this is what I'm talking about. There is a big gap in tactical understanding when it comes to equipment and training. I get it all the time. I get it all the time from LARPers and gamers who think, um, what they're doing on a flat range for the Instagram or for the YouTube is realistic in what would happen in real life. Like the criticism of, oh, that guy's not a real good shooter, so that means he sucks. Um, that guy was in SEAL Team 6 and killed more bad guys than you've killed in your video games. So in real life. So I, this, this, this needs to be a conversation that we talk about comprehensively, meaning in detail. And not glossed over. 
because that's the detriment of this industry in the first place. You got a whole bunch of actors, a whole bunch of emulators pretending to be tacticians, teaching shit they shouldn't be teaching. Like, just because you play video games and you shoot fast doesn't mean you need to be, need to be teaching those things to anybody. Especially putting it out there like, like that's how it works. I'll address that shit right now and I'll fix it myself. If you can't tell, I'm passionate about this because I think it's irresponsible. I think it's irresponsible to be just a shit talker and a, a, to be an influencer talking out your ass. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk about uh, race car driving and, and how badass I am because I'm not. I, I, I barely drive a car. I'm, I'm Korean. Like I, like I suck at driving and I have to work on it. I want to be a rally race car driver. But until I'm an accomplished rally race car driver, I'll keep my mouth shut and I'll listen to the experts. But I'm not listening to the uh, local drifter who drifts and autocrosses in parking lots. Like, that's not the guy I'm paying attention to. Uh, anyways, I, I digress. So, th- the whole point of this tactical advantage on defense series is to line out the discrepancies of tactics and to give you tangible takeaways for tactics um, when lining them out. And this is a long intro to this, but I want to make sure everybody understands the importance of um, taking this approach when it comes to this. So over the next couple of weeks, I'll be dropping these podcasts. I'll be dropping uh, YouTube videos. I just did a YouTube live on Phil Kraft Survival's channel. And I want to continue the conversation, especially answering your questions. I don't want any questions uh, unanswered. In fact, at the end of this podcast, uh, because I didn't get to them all, I'll answer some of your questions from the last ask for Mike Force on my personal Instagram at mike.a.glover. All right, so here we go. So self-defense, what does that mean? Well, self-defense is simply defending yourself. Um, but what I mean is um, self-defense as separated from vehicle and home as a consideration means you likely have to depend on what you have on your person at the time. So one of the uh, impactful courses that I went to when I worked for the CIA was a survival course where they taught us how to live, um, not only in mindset, but also in literal equipment to survive with what we had on our person. So imagine right now, I like entertaining this question because it, it kind of, it's thought provoking, right? It makes you think. Um, imagine right now you're in a situation where whatever you have on you, in your pockets, on your wrist, on your feet, on your head, from head to toe, whatever you have on you right now was the only thing you had to survive for the next 72 hours. The question is, could you survive? Now, if you live in rural Montana, that might be more difficult, right? If you're pushed out in the middle of nowhere because of circumstance and you're forced to try to survive in an austere environment, most certainly the elements will kill you first. So when you have that 50 degree swing from day into night, you're likely to get hypothermia and die from the cold, right? Um, So uh, if you live in um, uh, rural uh, Montana and you don't have the ability to source water, because you're in the middle of nowhere with no water resources, uh, including a blivet, a bladder, chlorine dioxide to sanitize the water or purify the water that you have, would you survive? Three days? That's, that's about the number 
of days that we look at for people who um, perish because of dehydration. So a lot of this idea in self-defense has to do with what you have on your person. And most certainly, your aptitude, your intelligence, your uh, ability to adapt is going to be a consideration in survival. But in addition to that, the tactical or technical equipment you have on your person and your ability to utilize that equipment because of training is going to complement and enable your survival. So you, you can't have one without the other is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So, um, I mean, you can have one without the other, but you're likely not to survive. Um, I love the, the idea that like mindset is everything. Um, mindset isn't going to hydrate you when you're dehydrated and dying because of it. Um, your mindset is not going to put a shelter over your head. Your skill sets will. Okay. So in self-defense, many people immediately default to everyday carry and the pistol that I'm carrying. Uh, that's not what we need to focus on. I mean, most certainly that's a variable, but that's not the focus. It's all of the things in their totality. If you're wearing cotton, for example, let's say you're wearing a cotton, I don't know, turtleneck, because that's what you're into, and you're doing an austere um, rural movement in your overland rig. You're a nice land cruiser. It's all sexy. It's, you got all your stuff together, and you, and you have this uh, idea that you're going to live out uh, off-grid for the weekend and take pictures. Because when you get back into the cell phone reception, everybody got, has to know what you did. You get out there and your car breaks down. And then you decide to make a movement in your cotton turtleneck in the middle of a blizzard. And then your clothes get wet. And then you have no option because now you're wet, you're soaking wet, and you got to start a fire. Do you have a fire rod? Do you have a lighter? Do you have the ability to start a fire in the middle of a, uh, a blizzard? Do you know how to source wood? Do you understand how to break down tinder? So these things all complement each other, and it's just not about the pistol. Um, I'm going to start off with a conversation talking about uh, the equipment, and then we're going to talk about the considerations, and then the tactics, and then we're going to migrate into mitigating risk and decision points. So the first thing I want to talk about is choosing the right equipment. Everyday carry is not just the pistol you carry. Everyday carry is what you wear, the equipment you carry from head to toe. I talk about a hat. I mean, if, if you see me, um, I wear a hat a lot. Uh, one reason I wear a hat all the time is I have straight Korean hair and I refuse to put product in my hair because I'm not a chick. Uh, I just don't do that. Um, two, um, I, I brand... Um, I build my brands based on logos and branding. Like I like representing brands. So how do I brand? Well, I wore patrol cap every day in the military. So for me to wear a ball cap, it doesn't hurt for me to wear uh, the companies I believe in. Black Rifle Coffee, Phil Craft Survival, um, uh, Andy Stump, uh, Jack Carr, like all these guys that I respect and I love, uh, I want to represent them. I just was wearing on the YouTube live Rick Hogg, Hogg uh, Warhog Tacticals hat because Rick was my selection cadre and uh, respected special operations member that I, I looked up to. So I wear his hat. But it also um, does a few things. One, 
It cuts and reduces your signature of your identity in half. Um, you ever heard of um, um, uh, facial recognition? Yeah, it's more difficult in facial recognition software to identify your face when it's masked about a third of your face with a, with a ball cap. Pulling a ball cap down over your brow would mask it even more. Almost 50% of your face could be masked with sunglasses and a hat. When I used to go through different airports, uh, when I worked for the uh, government, most certainly they had a facial recognition. Well, I'm going to wear a hat. Um, also, it conceals my, um, my, my intent, right? So if I'm wearing glasses and a hat, why would I want to do that? You ever see pictures of the Unabomber wearing the hood, wearing the sunglasses? Hard to identify. A lot of our identity comes in our brow and our eyes. So if I'm able to mask that, I don't say, I'm not saying this because you need to be clandestine. I'm saying it because it's consideration. Again, looking for the tactical advantage. Also, it protects my eyes from the sun, especially when I want to be able to see. So I, I'm super light sensitive because I've wore sunglasses as part of my, and a hat part, as part of the military, almost my entire adult life. Um, glasses, for example, polarized sunglasses. You'd never catch me cu- stepping outside not wearing sunglasses. Why? Well, one, I want to see because I'm looking for the advantage of sight. Um, two, I like the polarization uh, 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 feature in glasses so it can cut through different spectrums of light, um, including water. I mean, it's like the polarization uh, or polarized glasses uh, evolve with blue blockers. Remember those guys? Um, where you could see into... Um, off the reflection of water and see into water. Well, that, that accounts for reflections off glass and, and generally in life, right? It's just, it just cuts down on that spectrum of light so you could see. So why would I consider everyday carry my hat and my sunglasses? Because it's an advantage. It's an advantage. If I'm in, a, if I'm in an area, let's say, I'm, let's say I'm traveling to Boston and and I wore, let's say I went to Boston. I just learned about this recently. I didn't realize Boston was so liberal. But, but let's say I went to Boston, Massachusetts. If I went to Boston and I had a, a Trump hat or a MAGA hat, how do you think that would work out for me? Not very well. As a tactical consideration in my environment and adapting in my environment, I would want the advantage. If I wore a Trump hat in Boston or a liberal t- uh, town in America, name it. A city in America, name it, uh, that wouldn't be the advantage. Now, if I, if I wear, wore a Boston um, hat, uh, name the baseball team, name the basketball team. Let's say I had a Boston, Boston Celtics. I don't even know if the Celtics are still Boston. Uh, I, that's how dated I am. I stopped watching um, basketball when Larry Bird stopped playing for the Celtics. So let's say you're wearing a Boston Celtics hat. Well, w- immediately, you have rapport. It's like the same thing of like wearing an American ball cap in Libya. Uh, no, I wouldn't do that. Now, if I was wearing a Libyan soccer hat, I would have immediate rapport, depending on what my intent is. So I go into the world and I think about that when I get ready for the day. I, I don't just think, hey, put my EDC thing in and just wear what I wear. I go, hey, what am I doing today? Who am I going to be around? How am I going to interact? Um, it's the, it's a difference between picking up a sick camo baseball cap 
and picking up a black rifle cap. Well, if I'm going into the wood line, I want that Sitka hat. If I'm going to do a podcast with Evan Hafer, I want my black rifle, rifle hat. Um, same thing with glasses. If I'm going to teach on a flat range, well, I want a specific wraparound Oakley sunglass. Um, if I want um, to hang out because I'm, I'm going rural, I'm going to be in New Hampshire hanging out, uh, I want to have an Oakley pair of normal uh, sunglasses. I don't need uh, M-frame sunglasses that I wore in the military. So all of these things that I wear make a difference. Let's go down to the clothing. Let's, let's keep focusing on, on everyday carry clothing. So uh, Vertex, um, also Elberol stock is making some Gucci shit. Um, Glenn has put together some serious threads that I'm, I'm super pumped about. Uh, I have their new jacket, uh, Eberl Stock's new jacket. And it's, um, I, sorry, I don't know the name of it because I, I just suck at names. But it's one of my favorite jackets out. Um, it's an amazing jacket. Uh, I've gotten rid of all my Arcteryx gear because Arcteryx just sold out to China. I mean, it's been a year or so. Um, but I'm not int- interested in, in um, uh, taking care of China. So I'll take care of um, the right company with the right factories, including Vietnam, South Korea, and America. So I like their stuff. But when I wear uh, Vertex or Eberl Stock or Cool or whatever I'm wearing, I'm thinking about my habits and routines for the day and setting myself up for success. Like I see guys wearing the cotton shirt and the cotton, cotton uh, pullovers, and I'm like, bad choice. So if I'm going out hunting versus going out interacting with people, I want to wear the appropriate clothing that's going to give me the tactical advantage. I also like layers. One of the reasons you'll never see me without a collared shirt, for the most part, is because um, I live in a world where I come from special operations where formalities matter. Your first impression made with the chief of mission, uh, made with the chief of base, made with the uh, director of national intelligence or a general name it, is important. So if I wear a collared shirt, 90% of the time I'm set up for success professionally. You know, if you're wearing a collared shirt and booty shorts, I can't help you. But if you're wearing a, a pair of decent jeans, a collared shirt and boots, no matter who you run into, you're going to be squared away. Uh, for example, uh, recently, I mean, in the last couple months, um, I ran into the CEO of Sportsman's Warehouse, who was in my store here in Heber City. That's a big deal. I mean, it's not often that the CEO of a major uh, corporation, a public uh, company, comes into your business just shooting the shit. But I was wearing a professional attire, and, he, and nobody caught me not wearing a professional attire. So I also wear a collared shirt that's typically a button-up because it, I, I wear untucked, which gives me a little bit of real estate in masking or concealing my concealed carry pistol, which I want always. Um, if, if it's cold like it is now where it's snowing outside, I mean, I'm looking out at the snow at beautiful Heber City, then I have a jacket. Well, where, why am I wearing a jacket? Most often, it's not because I'm freezing cold, because you'll catch me wearing jackets and layers, even if it's uh, moderately cold, but because I want to increase my layers to mask and conceal my, um, my, my weapon. Um, you'll, if you see me wearing a, a short shirt, or even a shirt that I potentially tuck in, which is rare for me to do, you might even see me wearing a vest. Why? Because I want to mask the frame of my pistol that I'm carrying inside the waistband. That's why. 
I pay attention even to the underwear that I'm wearing. Like, I think depending on what I'm doing, um, I'm going to wear boxer briefs or potential Under Armour briefs that uh, have wickaway technology integrated into the fabric, but they also would help me um, if I was doing a long range movement. So if I'm going out in the field, potentially moving across terrain, then I, I want to prevent chafing and friction um, and wick away moisture because I don't want um, my hygiene to deteriorate. I'm thinking about that. Your belt. Um, not many people pay attention to, to jeans or belt, belts. I like jeans. Um, recently, I had a fall in Colorado. I fell off a, uh, a flight of steps and landed on my knees. I was wearing Origin USA jeans. Um, Pete, if you're listening to this, I need some backup. I need some jeans. Because when I impacted the ground, I ripped both jeans, um, knees, completely open. I devastated my knees, ripped them, uh, like ripped the skin off of. But if I didn't have those jeans on, which is tough American-made denim, then I certainly would have been uh, more seriously injured. So again, what I wear matters. Depending on where I'm going outside, I might wear wax-coated pants, like from Cool or Filson, because I want that wick-away moisture, but I also want the durability and reliability of that pant. So uh, belts. Um, I use leather belts. I use our Philcraft Frontier homemade in-house leather belts because I want that real estate of, of leather that I could use to attach my, um, the, the buck or I'm sorry, the clip on my inside the waistband holster, as well as having an alternate means to stopping the bleed was something that I know is wide enough and uh, with an, enough uh, width and circumference wrapped around an extremity that would stop the bleed and the right mechanism for me to be able to, uh, to cinch it tight. So I'm not going to use a belt buckle on most of it. I'm going to use a, a normal buckle, not like a, a, a Bronco buckle or a, a rodeo buckle, but like a normal buckle so I could pull back to create that tension. Again, I, I'm thinking through these things and my habits and routines where when I get dressed, these are considerations. I mean, you're not going to see me in a pair of khaki pants that, um, that aren't durable, aren't reliable, and don't have form and function. So let's take it down to, um, before we start talking about specific equipment, let's talk about shoes and socks. When I was in GRS, I've told this story before, um, bear with me if you've heard it. When I was in GRS, I was in um, uh, a country, I was in Yemen. And when you're a GRS officer, you're responsible for security. Well, I was off my shift, like I didn't, like I was off my work cycle. Like I'd already completed my work for the day and I was kind of unwinding. I was in flip-flops. I just went to the gym, which is a lot of GRS guys go to the gym for hours at a day, uh, during the day. I mean, I kill two to three hours in the gym a day. Um, you have nothing but time to kill. And um, I was unwinding. And I walked down to the base just to check in to see if anything was going on. And I had flip-flops on. And my TL, my team leader, he, he goes to me and he goes, bro, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm done. He goes, yeah, but you're in flip-flops. We don't, we don't wear flip-flops here. I'm like, what? What do you mean? I'm, I'm like, I'm off. And he goes, you're never off here, man. Like this, we're not, we, we are it. And I got it. 
irresponsible of of me to 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 not think about that. I mean, usually I'm I'm smarter than that. Um, but I was just dumb that day. But it, as soon as he said it, it made complete sense. I was used to being in the military where I was in a a base, and that base was protected by security, and then that had an outer cordon. You know, you had the inner perimeter, and then you had an outer cordon on a bigger base, and then you had aircraft, and you had QRF elements. Well, in this job, I was it. I was that QRF element. Everybody on the base for uh, depended on me and a few other guys to protect their lives. So the question is, could I have fought without wearing shoes? And some people who were just looking for excuses, the naysayers of the world, be like, absolutely, absolutely, you can. You could fight in Crocs and. You can fight whatever. What I'm saying is, can you optimally fight? And the answer is no. So you're either in shoes and prepared for for battle or self-defense, or you're in flip-flops and you're sacrificing uh, your ability to optimize your setup because you just don't care. So it's like, I'm not not saying uh, I want you to advocate and, and protest um, for the, for the wear of shoes and, and not to wear flip-flops. But what I'm saying is what you wear matters. If you're going to Walt Disney World with your family and you're wearing flip-flops, wrong answer. Why? If you have to pick up your kids and throw them on your back and get the hell out of Walt Disney because something catastrophic is happening, you don't have time to run in flip-flops. If you want to risk your family's life, then do that. If not, just get a good pair of, of running shoes or hiking shoes and just suck it up. Right? I, I think. There's a time and place, and in my everyday carry considerations, um, I'm not sacrificing. I'm not willing um, to live my life and taking the chance. It's the same reason why I carry a pistol every day. I carry a pistol because it's a responsibility of me as somebody who's trained and, and properly equipped to burden that responsibility as a responsible citizen and always carry. Um, it, I would never leave the house without a um, inside the waistband or concealed carry pistol on my person, ever. I'm not taking the chance. I'm not going to do it. Lastly, um, before we move on, let's talk about socks. Wick away. Wool. Depending on what you're wearing it for, you need the right socks. Um, I, look, I, I wear uh, uh, dad socks. I mean, I like socks that are, that are high, that go up around my ankle that offers support, that wick away moisture, and I'm a sock snob. Wigwams, I mean, there's a whole bunch of companies, of good, great sock companies, but uh, I'm definitely wearing the right socks. So let's talk about some specific um, equipment considerations. The, the no-brainer is the everyday carry pistol. So your pistol, your pistol is not, let me repeat this, your pistol is not an end-all, be-all solution. There is not an, a one pistol fits all. That's, why, that's one of the main reasons I did, I'm doing this because I want to delineate for you the, the differences in environment and your patterns of life and, and the circumstances that you live and how specific types of equipment fit that tactical consideration. When I was in the military in special operations, I tried like hell to create this one end-all, be-all solution. I said, hey, if I take my carbine and I use a 14.5-inch barrel optimized to a proper round with a variable optic, I could have like the best of both worlds because I could be an assaulter, assault through the building to get to the roof, and then be a sniper. 
to do long-range engagements. And in an urban sprawl like Iraq, like Baghdad, Iraq, I don't need that much distance. But it never worked. So we wound up eventually using short carbines to assault and clear through buildings to the rooftop and then unbag or pull out our scabbards, usually out of Eberl stock bags, um, pulling out our long guns, our SR-25s or our 300 Win Mags, depending on what we were doing, we'd pull out our long guns because we have two different types of equipment for intended uses, um, for intended scenarios. Um, I, think, I think Kevin Owens told me this once. He said, um, if you have one thing that's like a jack of all trades, it typically does all of those things like not very well. And I'm, I'm, I'm para-storing here. Um, but if you have the right equipment for the right scenario, the tactical solution for the right scenario, the problem, then you're likely going to have the right equipment for the job. So when I look at my everyday carry pistol during the day, um, here's my pattern of life. Um, I'm up when the sun comes up. I'm down really when the sun coming, is coming down. I'm, I'm down at the house and I've transitioned into home defense from self-defense. I'm not a night dweller. I'm not a night person. I've never liked going to clubs, hanging out at night. I don't go to bars in the middle of the night. Like I'm not that guy. So my everyday carry consideration based on my pattern of life and environment might be different. If you work the night shift, if you uh, like to um, malinger at night, you like to go to um, bars, clubs, uh, theaters, whatever you're into, at night, um, then you need to have a night setup versus a day setup. So I don't have Trigicon or Tritium night sights on my pistols. Why? I'm typically not out at night. Now, most self-defense actions um, and personal self-defense take place at night. That, that's, a, that's a fact. It's the majority. It's like 60 plus percent. So when I look at all of these considerations, I, I, I tend to focus on my pattern of life. So for me, um, the first thing I do with students is if they ask me, hey, what kind of pistol am I good for? Well, it depends on your hand size. So I take their hand, made it up to my hand, and the hand size is really indicative of what pistol I would recommend ultimately. But if we're just talking about me, because I can't put your hand on mine, um, don't always think smaller is better because it's compact, more concealable. If you have a Glock 19 and a Glock 17, or have never seen this, I encourage you to do it when you go to the gun store. Uh, if you're thinking about getting a pistol, do this. Glock 19 is considered uh, a compact or subcompact version. I mean, truly the Glock 43 or Glock 43X is going to be the, the compact. But if you take a subcompact Glock 19 with a full-size Glock 17, and you put them side by size, side by side, there's not that much difference. So what I've found in shooting everything from compact to subcompact to full-size guns, um, I carried a Glock 17 in government contract work. And I had confidence in that platform because I had 17 rounds of 9mm. I had, uh, if I wanted to add a base plate, I can add a couple more, two to three more rounds. And I also felt confident in shooting and controlling that through the sustainment of gunfire through an action. Because in self-defense, you're not going to shoot one shot. 
You're going to shoot as many shots as it takes, as many rounds as it takes in succession to end the threat. What I tell people is if you're thinking about perceiving threats, like let's say you're, you're shooting targets and you shoot one target one round and, and you shoot the next target two rounds, you haven't processed enough information to assess that that target's down. So if you told a person standing up to just pretend like they're dead and fall down, if they just went, ugh, and fell down, that's my universal sign for um, pretend like you're dead, it would take you seconds. It's two to three seconds to fall from standing to, to lying horizontal on the ground. Now, I want you to think about the perception of you shooting and engaging and then registering that the threat is no longer a threat. So you would be engaging through that two to three seconds and you could have 10, 15 rounds out of that gun in a rapid period of time in two to three seconds um, and, and be done with it. So when we, when we look at our setup, we have to remember that we're not focusing for our, our, our equipment for national match slow aim fire. We're setting ourselves up for multiple rounds in, in, in a rapid engagement scenario. So I like full-size pistols because my hand is big. If I take a Glock 43X and I shoot that, I will be very uncomfortable with that pistol because my support hand uh, out, out uh, lengthens um, the actual gun itself. Like my, my, the tip of my thumb is hanging outside in the front of the barrel. And when a gun is shorter and smaller, it becomes more snappier because it has a shorter barrel, shorter guide rod, and shorter spring. So it's typically harder to handle, especially for somebody who has a smaller hand. So when I talk about concealability, you have to ask yourself, what in your pattern of life is the most often carried configuration? If you're a woman who wears yoga pants every single day, that's fine. No, nothing wrong with yoga pants. But your everyday carry considerations for the pistol you carry would be very different as an answer than if you were carrying it as a 240-pound male inside the waistband in a belt. Right? That would be a full-size carry, most definitely. Um, for the person with the yoga pants, I would recommend they carry a sling bag of some kind, Patagonia Sling Atom, a... Uh, Philcraft Black Rifle um, uh, Fanny Pack, which we have, something of that nature before I would opt you in to carrying it inside your waistband. And if you're a 120-pound woman, would I say, hey, um, you don't need to carry a compact because it's too snappy? Not necessarily, but what I've seen on flat ranges that I teach uh, on, and, and Philcraft Survival most certainly teaches thousands of people every year, is a small woman holding a small compact gun that, that recoils, muzzle flips and recoils aggressively is not going to instill or build confidence. There's a balance there. My, in my opinion, the balance is the SIG 365 XL. That's one of my favorite pistols. It's, like, it's similar to the, I would say it's similar to the Glock 48 being a larger framed pistol to get more real estate. But I'm a fan of SIG pistols because of the frame height that allows somebody with um, uh, big, um, big hands like me to get real estate without overwhelming the gun um, and potentially locking the slide catch or slide release and inducing a malfunction, which I'm known to do on Glocks. Since I've been shooting Glocks in special operations, I was that guy with my big hands, always 
uh, locking the slide catch release, inducing malfunctions. So the 365 XL for me is a good opt-in. Now, another consideration in full-size carry is if you have a big hand or you have a small hand and you're comfortable on a bigger gun, you have to look at how it prints when carrying inside the waistband. Like for me, I got a 32-inch wide waist. I'm 230 pounds, six foot one, so I'm a larger guy. I can get away with a full-size frame inside the waistband and appendix carry, meaning center line of my body. But if you're one of those guys who carried offset on your right side as a right-handed shooter, which I, I think is bad practice, but whatever you're into, um, it's bad practice because that barrel literally sits over your femoral artery when you're seated. Um, but let's say you, you push it even further back and it's on your, uh, the right side or, uh, over your right butt cheek. Well, it's going to be harder to get to. Also, you're potentially printing more because it's on the edge of your body. So if you look at somebody and they're walking towards you and they have this big lump of something on the right side of their body, well, likely it's a firearm. It's harder to identify a pistol that's an appendix carry where the barrel is in line with their body, the center of their body, where the frame of that gun actually sits over the appendix. It's harder to identify that. But if you're wearing a 320X carry, for example, a SIG, full-size frame, and you have that pistol and you're a woman, well, that's different. Now you want, might want to uh, migrate that pistol to a purse, a Merce, a European man satchel, whatever you're into, or get a smaller form factor pistol. So for me, it depends on what I'm wearing. So what I'm wearing today right now is a vest, a button-up shirt, and I'm just kidding. I'm in my underwear. Right now, I'm wearing, I'm, I'm wearing nothing. I have like a Derringer inside of my... I'm, I'm hiding a Derringer inside my underwear. Um, but let's say I was wearing a button-up and I was wearing a vest. Well, I would, wear a, I would carry a full-size pistol. It could be anywhere between appendix carry or offset on the right side of my body because that vest, even unzipped, is going to be draping over that pistol. If I wanted to get even more accessible, I could put a full-size pistol inside an outside-the-waistband uh, holster, offset it on the right side of my body with a vest where it's only available when I sweep my vest. It's like a perfect IDPA setup where, uh, you know, <laughs> if you go to an IDPA match, it's like everybody's a uh, professional bass fisherman because they got on these like weird vests that are just used to mask the gun because of the rules, but you'll never wear that in real life unless you're in a bass boat. So wearing a Carhartt vest though, in the middle of Utah, Montana, rural Wyoming, that's normal. So now I have access to that pistol and it's pressed closely against my body. I like inside the waistband appendix carry because it allows me to sit and continue to have that pistol inside my waistband. What I've seen a lot of people do who carry on the right side of their body, or even in the appendix carry, I've seen them sit in their cars. I've had buddies who do this. They'll pull their pistol out, put it in the center console. They'll pull it out, put it in their holster when they get out of the vehicle. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, if you're doing short trips, um, there's no need to take that pistol in and out. I can understand a longer trip where, like myself, I'm not going to carry on an eight-hour drive, I'm not going to carry a pistol inside the waistband, inside of my appendix carry holster the entire trip. 
I'm going to take the holster and the gun out, stick it in my center console or stick it or wedge it in between my seat and my console to have ready access, but it's in the holster. But I don't understand this idea of I'm wearing a setup, I take the gun out, I manipulate it, and I put it inside of a different setup. Like pick the proper setup that's going to allow you the opportunity to draw rapidly that pistol from appendix carry, no matter where you're at. Home defense, self-defense, vehicle defense, whatever you're into. So I also like um, Kydex holsters. Now, I will tell you, if I'm in a rural setting and I'm carrying outside the waistband, I prefer a leather holster because leather keeps it nice and snug against my body when it's outside the waistband versus most plastic holsters that are outside the waistband are made for belts. So they have a little bit more gap space in between uh, the mounting system and the holster. So let's just say you're running a Safariland ALS on the outside of a belt. It's going to be way out there. But if you have leather, it's going to be a lot closer. Now you have to have the right leather holster. Um, you, you don't want to go with the wrong leather holster because uh, that could be a liability and safety. Um, and and I, I don't want to risk that. Um, when I was in Afghanistan in the early days, I used to wear a holster that I bought for my Beretta 92F, a, a big old piece of crap, um, that I bought in Bagram, Afghanistan, because they, this leather guy was making these holsters. So you want to be able to set yourself up uh, for the proper carry with a proper pistol, depending on your pattern of life and your environment. I have five different EDC pistols, uh, depending on, on where I'm going. Now, let's talk about the lights and the optics. So, um, I, I want to lie to you and say that the red dot isn't a tactical advantage because I don't usually use red dots, but it's not true. It is a tactical advantage. When I, the first time I saw the tactical advantage, I mean, look, uh, Special Operations has been using red dots on pistols for, for decades. It's nothing new in elite Special Operations units. but. What I will say is there's this um, a begrudging <laughs> tribe of people who are like, red dots are stupid. You need, to, you need to use iron sights. Like, no, 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 no. The same reasons that I would rather have a 30 power variable uh, optic uh, on top of a 6.5 Creedmoor and not iron sights is the same justifications of why I would want a red dot on a pistol. So a red dot on a pistol the first time I saw this translate was when I was working with an academy and we had patrolmen, basic patrolmen and women who were training to be police officers. Many of those officers did not have a lot of experience with firearms. So they weren't used to shooting pistols. They weren't used to uh, um, shooting in self-defense with pistols and they were horrible. So when you take the red dot and you put it on a pistol, at 25 meters, and you say, just hold the dot over the target and pull the trigger, instant feedback, positive affirmation immediately because they're hitting the target. They, they'll even shoot a 25-meter bull better. But you tell them to do the same thing with front sights, and they suck. They can't do it. So not to say that you shouldn't learn your fundamentals, but there's a reason that we advance our equipment with accessories that are going to give us the tactical advantage. So why not do that? So some of my favorite dots, I hate the Trijicon RMR. 
Um, good company, Aimpoint, makes some great stuff, but I am not a fan of the Prism, which is this like rainbow reflective material on that uh, dot. Um, I'm more of a fan of uh, Leupold's Delta Point Pro. Their NV model is the one I use, the tan one, that has night vision capability with an infrared dot, essentially. And um, I like, uh, I think it's the Trigicon RMO, which has a wider field of view. I like red dots that have wider fields of view. It's the tactical advantage. So moving on from red dots, let's talk about sights. If you spend a lot of time outdoors at night, then you need to have a night sight set up for self-defense. I mean, technically, everybody should have a nighttime setup on their EVC pistol. The reason I don't is because I use fiber optic. But it's not really fiber optic, but it's, it's basically an optic um, piece of plastic on the front sight, which, which comes from Warren Tacticals uh, or Warren... Um, uh, Dave Vigny's Warren Tactical Sights were the, the first version of this that I got, which has a little piece of plastic that sucks up light and illuminates the front sight with a little red or green dot, which is the plastic. So if you're shooting a Warren Tactical Sight, um, it, it, your eye picks it up a little bit better. And I like that. So that's why I use it. So I'm looking for the tactical advantage during the daytime. Now, if you're running a Trigicon, or a tritium um, uh, light source that kind of, it's like a glow-in-the-dark kind of optic setup, then that would be your setup, and it doesn't give you much advantage during the day, but most certainly in low light or no light, you get the tactical advantage. So again, another justification for red dots, right? If I have a red dot um, and it's, it's uh, illuminated, I don't have to worry about finding a front sight glow-in-the-dark or not, okay? Um, so when we talk about lights, I'm not a fan of putting lights, adhering lights on pistols, just not a fan of it. The reason I don't do that is because again, I don't spend a lot of time at night in my patterns of life, but when you carry an inside the waistband pistol, especially appendix carry with a light, it, it literally grows the form factor of your concealed holster. So have you seen, um, a light holster for X300. Surefire makes the X300. It's massive. It's, it's not massive, but it's big. It's not small. And when you put that light on your gun, it makes everything bigger. So now I have to shove this big holster with this big gun, and it makes the draw cumbersome. And so, like, I'm a minimalist. So, my thought process is I also don't like adhering lights to guns because I want the utility of a, of a light. So if I only have a light on my gun and I need to shine a light under the hood of a car in the middle of the night, I don't want to pull my gun and like move my gun around with the light for utility. So I like separating the two. Now, if you spend some time at the, during the night and you have the right setup, right, the, the proper setup in pistol, which I think is a 365 XL with one of those small uh, lights that don't go beyond the barrel, uh, even with a Viz laser. That's the perfect setup. Do that. That's the perfect setup. So when you look at that setup, um, if, if you take that uh, particular setup and, and you're using it with a handheld, then you have the tactical advantage. 
Because in self-defense, when I use a light on a gun, I want to be able to identify the threat. But you're also giving away your position when you illuminate a light from your pistol. Uh, in addition to that, most people think that this is not a, no, a low light, no light conversation, so I won't go into detail about this. We do offer this at PhilCrowdSurvival.com in training. Uh, you, you guys could train low light, no light with us. I just taught one at Route 66 Sports Shooting uh, Park. Um, you guys could do that with us and, and get all the details. But it, here's essentially, in a nutshell, my, cl- my class. Lumens does not mean more capability. Um, because at a certain point of lumens, be it between 100 and 500 lumens, you are degrading your ability to see because you're blinding yourself as well. So if I shine 500 lumens and I shut it down, whatever I was looking at, I'm now blind uh, for five to 10 seconds. It would take five to 10 seconds for the, the rods and the cones in my eyes to compensate to get back to where I need to be. Of course, this is an ambient light, but that's how your eyes work. If you're clearing in home defense, there's a different consideration than self-defense. Because in self-defense, I'm probably likely drawing the pistol in defense of my life while presenting a pistol and trying to identify the threat. So you might have a, a higher likelihood of using that light against a, a sole immediate threat. But never say never, right? So let's say you're by yourself and you're clearing an area. Well, if you walk into a room and you clear with 500 looms, you just blinded yourself and you just gave away your position. Now you have to wait five to 10 seconds until you can continue to move on to the next location to let your eyes recover. But if you use 50 lumens, your eyes recover in one to two seconds. So how much light do I need to identify a threat is the question. I recommend a handheld light that has 50, 100 to 500 lumens adjustable, uh, whether it's a Surefire, uh, look, it's Surefire has the best lights on the planet. Just go with Surefire. And then opt in, depending on your scenario, depending on the circumstance, a pistol tethered to a light. So I'm likely to set up my SIG 365 with a light, but a compact light, because I want a compact setup for everyday carry. The ultimate everyday carry pistol light. Um, that's it, guys. I, I'm going to hold off on this because I'm going to do another part of this. This is part one. So I have three parts, self-defense, uh, vehicle defense, and home defense. This is part one of a few runs at self-defense. We still got a, a crap ton of stuff to talk about. We got uh, med equipment, uh, other equipment, EDC considerations, what you wear matters. We talked about that. Tactics for five defense scenarios, situational awareness, mitigating risk, decision points, self-defense tactics for women, and, and if you have children, fitness. Um, the list goes on. I even have a block where I'm going to talk about um, if you're disabled, because I want to you know, help everybody here being more capable, capable at defending themselves. So that's all I got for you on the Mike Force podcast. Guys, if you're interested in this topic, make sure you subscribe and stay tuned to all of the things uh, that we have going on on all of our social media channels. This is for you. This is, we're not, I'm not asking for anything here. I, I want you to train with us. I want you to be equipped by us. But there's no ask here. You don't have to pay through a paywall to get access to this information. You just got to tune in. Go to YouTube, the Philcraft Survival Channel. Make sure you subscribe, and then you hit the notification links because that's how you get tied into my live feeds. 
Go to Phil Kraus Survival on Instagram. Go to Phil Kraus Survival on podcast. And then go to obviously go to Mike Force. My personal Instagram, I have two because I have a backup where I don't do gun content so I don't get suppressed, is mike.a.glover or Mike Glover Actual. And you could also go to mikegloveractual.com for all the stuff uh, that I'm going on. It's my high speed link tree for all the things that we're doing. If you're interested in this leadership seminar coming up, I think February 5th and 6th are the dates, or February 5th is the date. Uh, I have Jack Carr and Andy Stump coming out with myself, as, as, as well as Waylon Lucas, who's going to cook dinner for us. Um, the, the idea is professional development. It's called ProDev on professionally developing you in leadership and entrepreneurship. And I got the subject matter experts to bear. I'm the host, but you'll be getting some expertise from me. But I'm hosting Jack Carr, a New York Times bestseller, and Andy Stumpf, a former um, Navy SEAL with a myriad of experiences. He has a top-rated podcast. He's a pilot. He's a wingsuit flyer. He's a successful uh, entrepreneur as well as a Navy SEAL officer. So all of that is going to be uh, February 5th at Philcraft HQ. Stay tuned for that because I'm going to drop that soon. Till next time, guys. Peace out. Peace.